Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, we're big fans of the kettlebell here at the Art of Manliness. It's a great piece of gym equipment that builds both strength and cardiovascular conditioning. Today on the show, I talked to strong first kettlebell coach Craig Marker about the wonders of these little cannonballs with handles. Mark digs deep into the research done by the Soviets back in the 70s and 80s that show why kettlebells are an effective tool for building explosive power and how kettlebell training can improve your deadlift, help you jump higher, and even become a better ballerina, if that's your thing. We then segue our conversation to talking about training in general and the mistakes beginners make when starting with a strength program, be it using kettlebells or barbells or whatever. Mark then makes the case that in addition to our regular workouts, we should live our lives like in the 1940s if you want to see improved health and happiness. We end our conversation talking a bit about Craig's day job as a psychology professor at Mercer University and how his training as a psychologist has helped him improve his coaching and fitness training. He even shares a little trick you can play on yourself to lift more weight or run faster. After the show is over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash marker. Craig Marker, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So you are a, a strong first coach, but besides that, you also do something else on on the side. I guess it's not your side job, but your main gig. You got a really interesting background. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. Trained as a psychologist, but I've always gone back and forth between statistics and psychology. Did my postdoc respecialization in quantitative methods, and you're probably going to hang up on me already, but what this actually means is that I basically study not only whether interventions work, but for whom they work, do they work for? So in general, in research, we're often looking at the average effectiveness. So does it work on average? But my job is really to look at for whom it works and what are the factors that might make it work better or what factors does it not work so effectively? So, you know, what works for different people may not work for me or may work for you. So with that, I've been able to do a lot of interesting projects. I, I teach at Mercer University, but I also get to work with Pavel Satsulin on his kettlebell protocols and his strength and conditioning protocols as well. And how long have you been doing that at Strong First? I think, let me think here, about two years or so. Before you started working with Strong First, did you do any type of coaching or training? Oh, most definitely. And I, I've always done training and, and, you know, done a lot with uh, research. It's just working with Pavel for the past two years, you know, did a lot of kettlebells and, you know, I've read Pavel's work years ago. So I've always been interested in the research, you know, on strengthening 
conditioning and also nutrition has always been something I've, I've followed pretty closely. All right, so we've had the CEO of Strong First, Eric Frohart, on the show to talk about kettlebell training in general and something we've written about extensively on the site before. And I know there's a lot of folks who you know strictly use kettlebells for the training program. For example, you might be doing Pavel's Simple But Sinister program. I've done that before. It's great. Besides kettlebell training in and of itself, right, for it's just as your your training protocol, how can kettlebells, like supplementing with kettlebells, benefit other fitness domains? Like, for example, I mean, how could kettlebell training translate over to, you know, improving your your squat, uh, barbell squat or your barbell deadlift? Sure, sure. If it's okay, I might just give a little background of what I see happening in the swing because I think it, it seems like the kettlebell has this magical property. And I, I want to explain it as best as I see it. So Yuri Verkoshansky was one of the great Soviet track and field coaches in the 1960s. He later, you know, really wrote the the field of strength and conditioning in the Soviet Union. He developed what was called shock training at the time, or what he called it as shock training. And his athletes would drop off of a box, they'd hit the ground and rebound and jump as high as they could as quickly as possible. And his athletes just did phenomenally. He, they were breaking many records, and he became known as the father of plyometrics. Uh, his, his work is, is really great, helps people really improve their sprinting. One problem with this method is he had athletes jumping off the box as, as high as 1.5 meters or 60 inches, and it's tough to do that movement properly. So if you're if you don't land correctly or the ankle caves in a little bit or the knee caves, the knee tends to follow if the ankle caves in a little bit, structural damage can start to occur. So athletes really need to have good movement patterns to do these drills. If we think about the kettlebell swing, it looks a lot like the jump. Our, our feet are in a position, our, our butt goes back and we look like we're gonna jump. And when we throw the kettlebell back between our legs, we're reversing force, similar to how a, a shock jump would be. So we're it's instead of having to land on the ground and then reverse the force, uh, we're doing it with a kettlebell so our, our legs can be in a good position. We don't have to, to find the ground and to, to land properly. So I think it's a lot safer movement, and it does reverse a lot of force. So Pavel was actually tested with Brandon Hetzler on a, a force plate. He could generate about 400 pounds of force on the downswing of this kettlebell swing. So reversing that much force, I think is where the hap the magic happens neurologically for the kettlebell swing. So we would prime our neurological systems to react quickly. And, you know, we're really, it's the stretch reflex that's doing it, but it, it's been shown many times to increase vertical jump in athletes, especially like volleyball players. A study done by Fabio Zonin, he did it with ballerinas. These were pretty good ballerinas. These were uh, almost elite ballerinas. And he had them do an eight-week course on uh, using kettlebells, the simple and sinister, as you mentioned. And what they found was that they improved their ballet jumps, which is fascinating to me because a ballet jump looks nothing like a kettlebell swing, thank goodness. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's part of that, that it's that neurological connection. Like we're, we're creating, uh, we're rebounding quicker, more powerfully when we do our kettlebell swings. So I think it's a really good tool for building explosive strength. And then we also see it working really well for powerlifting movements like the deadlift, like you mentioned. There have been many times people train for a kettlebell event and then they come back afterward and lift a lot more in their deadlift, even though they haven't trained their deadlift at all. So it, it's, you know, and the pattern looks very similar in a deadlift 
and the kettlebell swing. So the top of the deadlift looks pretty much exactly like a, a kettlebell swing. So it's a really effective exercise. It's simple. I don't think the kettlebell itself has magical properties. It's just very simple and portable. One thing I noticed too about what I, what I liked about the Simple and Sinister program, it was hard, but it didn't feel like it beat me up. Exactly. And I think that's one of you know the, the hallmarks of, and one of the reasons I wanted to really work with Pavel is the programs keep me healthy and just always ready. He works with a lot of special forces and, you know, they can't say, I can't, I can't go today because my legs are sore from squats. You know, his programs are always built where you have some left in the tank and you can train again the next day and be healthy. So I mean, say someone wanted to get the, this benefit, you mentioned, you know, Pavel was able to generate 400 pounds of force on the backswing. Like how heavy of a kettlebell do you need to use to get that or does it matter? Yeah, excellent question. So yeah, there's a couple of ways we can do this. I mean, one, if we think about setting a kettlebell on our foot, we can handle that. If we drop it on our foot, you know, that's going to really do some damage. But if we throw it on our foot, it, it becomes even more damaging. So usually what we do with a kettlebell swing is we, we pop the kettlebell up in the air, it floats, and then it falls back down. So with that, we're probably not generating 400 pounds of force on the backswing. But if we actively throw it down, which is called an overspeed eccentric, that's where we can generate a lot more force. So I think Pavel did that with a 32 kilogram, but you know, for the most part, uh, that's 70 pounds. You know, 24 kilogram, 50, 54 pounds works quite well. You can generate a lot of force, you know, with a kettlebell that doesn't seem that big. So for someone who's just starting out with a, a kettlebell, what weight do you recommend? They get. Yeah, the old recommendations were sort of a 16 kilogram for men and, you know, eventually working up to a 24 kilogram and maybe a, an 8 or a 12 kilogram for, for women and then working up to a 12 or 16. Let's talk about just training in general because uh, you've written a lot over at Breaking Muscle about not just kettlebell training, but also just training in general. Let's talk about beginning training, whether you're doing kettlebell or barbell training or whatever else, what do you see are the biggest mistakes beginners make when they're first starting out with any sort of strength training program? First of all, I like that you use the word training. I think, you know, one mistake I see is people call it a workout. And, you know, there's this idea that I need to suffer, I need to work out, like somehow everything needs to be spent after training. And I think that idea that we need to suffer in the gym, there's probably some usefulness to suffering and you, you need to you know put some energy into it, but that's not our end goal. And I, I think sometimes, you know, we almost become addicted to that suffering and, you know, I have to go to the gym and get this um, spent feeling. And I think sometimes, you know, it's kind of a, a harsh statement, but feelings don't matter. Your feelings don't matter in the gym. You know, following a good protocol is what matters. And like you said, the simple and sinister, there's many days it's like, oh, this is it. And, you know, you're done in, in 15 minutes. And it's that's all you need to do today. And you don't have to feel spent. So I, I think part of it is just following a good protocol, you know, doing a training session. It's it's training the skills in each session. And then I think thinking of each rep as a, an opportunity to find perfection. You're always searching for that perfect rep. I think those are important things for beginners to, to keep in mind. Well, going back, I'm going to kind of backtrack here because the question just came to my mind. Let's say you are doing barbell training. Like That's what I do. I do uh, press, squat, deadlift, bench press. Could I include a, like a simple and sinister routine like in, on my off days or would that be too much? I, I think that, you know, the big thing is, you know, depending on how much volume you're doing on the 
you know, the other exercises. I, I would definitely think you add it, but if you're if you're doing super high volume with those, you're going to need the recovery for those exercises. So, we, but we do often build a simple and sinister type program for powerlifters. I think the Turkish get up is one of the best ways to protect your shoulder to sort of prehabilitate your shoulder to keep it strong and safe, um, especially if you're doing a lot of bench press. That that having a, a kettlebell overhead that's moving all around is great for building those those extra muscles around there. The swing is going to really help your deadlift. So I, I think those it, it really fits well for a powerlifting type of program. Before we got on the show, you know, I was mentioning that I I, I just did my first weightlifting competition. That's powerlifting is sort of my thing. I really enjoy it. I did starting strength, uh, the three by five routine that I've, I've advanced on to more intermediate and advanced programs because my linear progression stopped. So I had to adjust my training, but you, besides uh, kettlebell stuff, Pavel also does barbell programming. Can you talk a little bit about that? Cause I don't, I don't think a lot of people know that. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. And actually a lot of his original work in the old muscle medias and the old um, iron mind, you know, were barbell type programs. So he, he really, you know, it, it the tool, is not important. I mean, he ended up popularizing kettlebells because, you know, that was unique to people and, you know, everybody wanted to search him out for that. But yeah, his um, barbell programs are excellent. He's worked on, you know, he's had these very simple principles over the years, but he's looked at the old Soviet systems and put these principles into what they used to do. And there's some, you know, simple rules involved with that. And, you know, one of them is basically waving the volume and waving the intensity so every basically we can think of it as sort of a fractal pattern so every you know month you're going one month a little more volume the next month a little less and the, the third month sort of in between so you're always waving how many uh, reps you're doing basically for the month uh, within the month each week you wave the volume so some weeks you know, it's, it's high, medium, or low. And then within the week itself, you're waving the volume too. You've got a heavy day, medium day, light day. And, you know, what he found that these old, the Soviet system was incredible in how much they measured everything. They measured every training sessions. And Medvedev, I sorry, I can't pronounce his name properly, but he, you know, he wrote over 300 articles on these Soviet-type training programs. So Pavel went through these and came up with these uh, basic ideas and one was that waving the volume and the intensity every week. And, and these things don't always go together. So I think Ripito's program is really good. But if you think about it, it's a very linear program that on week one, you know, you're working with five reps of a lighter weight. Week two, a little uh, heavier weight, but uh, fewer reps. And so everything goes in a, a straight line pattern where this will wave and your volume and your intensity aren't coupled together. They're not correlated. That some weeks you're doing high intensity, uh, heavier weight, but also higher volume. And other weeks you might be doing low of both of those. So they're they're completely uncoupled from each other. So that, it's a really neat system. And he'll have a, he has a, a seminar that he does called Plan Strong, but uh, he'll have a book coming out soon on that system. So I mean, what's the benefit of having those sort of undulations right? In volume and in intensity. Yeah, I think one, I mean, for me and for the people I've trained, it really keeps people healthy that, you know, we're not, 
the kind of the the old idea of you know just keep uh, go heavier go heavier heavier yet and then get injured there's a mentality of that this this is waves of load so if you follow the program you're automatically going to get you know rest weeks and you know easier weeks involved so I, I see athletes being healthier but I also see some pretty incredible strength gains. We had the kettlebell level two sort of certification. The, the big strength exercise is a, a press with a kettlebell that's half your body weight. And um, it's it's a pretty tough thing to do. And it's uh, many people can't do it. We put a bunch of people on this program and every one of them did it. And it's it's pretty amazing how strong people get. And we've done it with some Olympic lifters and they've, you know, greatly improved their performance, their strength performance in their Olympic lifting. So I think, you know, it keeps people healthy and then it also works quite well to get them stronger. Right. And so is this a program, this plan strong program, is this something that is good for beginners and intermediates? Like it's for any, you know, strength level? Yeah, and I think, you know, in general, this sort of waving the load is kind of a useful idea that you, you know, have light, medium, heavy days. Of course, the volume will change. So if you're, you know, an athlete that's new, you might need not need as much volume, you know, at the beginning than an elite athlete. So, you know, I think that's probably where the biggest difference is. But yeah, it could certainly be used for beginners as well. Okay. We'll, we'll put some links on the site where people can find out more information about this when we publish our show notes. So you've written a lot for Breaking Muscle. It's one of my go-to strength and conditioning sites. It's a lot of in-depth content over on a variety of different topics. One article that stuck out to me is you talk about the importance of taking into consideration individual differences when deciding on a training program or even just like the lifts you use. What are some of those differences people need to consider when they start a, a training program? You know, and I think this part of this is just how to read science. I, I think, that, you know, there's an article that came out a few weeks ago about HIT training that you may have seen. And it basically talked about, you know, the headlines were about HIT, uh, high intensity interval training, increasing long longevity. And I saw this headline over and over again. So I went to the research and they had 27 people and three different protocols. So nine people were on the HIT protocol. And what they found, they, these people increased their mitochondrial density. And, you know, this is associated with aging. The more mitochondria we have, the, you know, the better we age. But, you know, they didn't actually measure longevity in these people. So sometimes we read these research articles and we think, oh, I need to go do HIIT training. And, you know, I, I keep some certain questions in mind as I, as I look at research. And I think everybody needs to do this is, first of all, look at the sample and ask, you know, how similar is it to me? If if you're looking to find something useful for you, then make sure the sample is the same. So if if I'm looking at a nutrition study and, you know, they found this new substance, you know, helps people lose weight, are they looking at an obese sample and, you know, I'm not obese or, you know, the other way around, you know? So try to make sure that the sample's similar to you. Um, another thing I do when I look at, you know, science and research protocols are the cost involved. You know, if I, you know, green tea and fish oil are, you know, constantly in the news as being good for me, I can pretty simply add that at a very little cost to me. So it's not going to hurt me to add that to my my plan. But if I, you know, changing my whole training system, you know, that's going to be a little bit more cost. So I always think about the cost involved in testing things out. And then I need to ask the question how I know whether it works or not. So I need to measure things individually. We all have to be our own scientists. We have to be our own coach. And, 
you know, so I need to figure out if it worked for me. And I think that's the important part and how it works for you as an individual. So measure and, and check to see if it worked, I think is a, another important part. Yeah, I think that you just touched on a thing that I think a lot of beginners make particularly is um, they'll start a program and then they'll read some study or some article about here's this great program that has all these great results. And so they immediately jump ship to this new program. They start doing that and they read another thing and they do the jump ship and like they never allow themselves to see if the program they're doing is actually working. I know I did that a lot before I started, you know, getting really consistent with my training. And I, uh, the result was I, I didn't have like really good results. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's easy to do that. I, I do that too. I love reading new programs, it's, but it's, that it's being patient. Like I have to finish this 12 week program out to where I will never know if it worked or not. So yeah, it's, it's, it's fun looking at all these different types of programs. Another article that you've written about that really stuck out to me because it kind of syncs up with our spirit we have here, the art of manliness. You had this article about live like it's 1940 or train like it's 1940. It was just all about incorporating more movement throughout your day. Can you talk us a little bit through how you know we should all be living like 1940s dads or men? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's why I love love what you guys do too. And And, you know, the paleo idea sounds great to me. But I don't hunt my food and, and you know, I, I don't have a way to do that. So I thought 1940s might be a little simpler place to go. But, you know, I like in the airport or, you know, even at work, I'm on the fourth floor. I never try to take the elevator. I, you know, the stairs are there for me, you know, as a you know, perfectly good opportunity. So I try to imagine those things don't exist. I have a push mower, a wheel, you know, is not motorized. It's just got the little thing that spins around. I, I kind of like using that. You know, there's all of these conveniences, but, you know, if I try to avoid the conveniences, I'll get a lot more exercise in my life. And, you know, I think that's, you know, where I can add those little benefits. They'll uh, they'll pay off a lot more in the end of the day. You know, and even, even right now, like, I'm sure many of the, your guests have standing desk and you know it keeps me more mobile during the day or you know I think you use a standing desk as well you know and so just those little things add up quite a bit I'm also doing you know like calf stretching right now as I stand here I'm stretching my calves out and you know kind of uh, doing different things you know working on my mobility every once in a while putting my foot up on a stool you know the more we can do throughout the day it doesn't all have to be at the training session I think those things are are quite important yeah the the real mower I have one of those that thing is like a prowler sled it's an hour-long prowler sled session yeah yeah it's it's you know and honestly like i love it because i can then just you know put my headphones in and listen to a podcast if i had a motorized one i i couldn't do that so i, I get a lot more uh, listening to your podcast in by by playing with the wheel mower well I, I appreciate that and the other thing too it, it cuts your grass better i feel like yeah because it it cuts it like scissors, it doesn't just chop it. We've written an article about that. So if any of you are interested in the push reel mower, I think the picture you had on breaking muscles, the one that I have. Yeah, so fun stuff. So just move more throughout the day. Stand up, take a walk, inconvenience yourself a little bit to get a little bit more movement because those little, little things add up. Most definitely. Yeah, park the car. I mean, these, these are commonly known things, you know, park the car far away as much as possible. And, you know, the I love airports. I mean, the stairs are... I love your little challenges that you have, you know, you have different, you know, articles about challenging yourself. I feel if I can't carry my bags up staircases at airports, then, you know, I, I, that's one of my, you know, markers. I need to be able to do that. So my wife laughs at me, but I always take the stairs and always carry the bags up the stairs. So it's, it's you know, you need to do those challenges. We've had a guest on the show named Walker Lamond. He wrote a book called Rules for My Unborn Son. And one of his rules was, 
no wheelie luggage. And implying this sort of, you know, live like it's 1940, I mean, you can apply this to diet as well, you know, because back then, I know my grandfather grew up on a farm. So it was a lot of bacon and eggs in the morning, oatmeal, just like whole foods. And they didn't eat a lot. Like our portions just gotten out of control as a consequence because he ate like that. Like he lived a relatively healthy life. I mean, he lived to be almost 101. I'm sure genetics had a lot to do with that, but I'm sure lifestyle helped as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we can certainly, I, I agree with that too for eating. I, I try to eat as little processed food as possible, you know, when I can have the simple ingredients, the better it is. So. Fitness doesn't have to be difficult. I oftentimes feel like we complicate things because it makes us feel like we're doing something. But when you just just eat good foods, not too much, move regularly, exercise, you're going to be good. Yep, most definitely. So let's shift over um, to how you've incorporated your academic career as a psychologist to your training. I'm curious, how has your work there with psychology influenced the way you train or coach? You know, they're they're really similar. You know, I don't really see it being very different. You know, what I do with my students, you know, I have to challenge them through their work and, you know, the same thing with coaching. Like I, you know, I try to develop everyone to be their own coach. You know, my, my goal is to give you everything I've got, all my information and you become your own coach. And, you know, you'll eventually like with my students, the same thing, you'll have all my knowledge you need to, to be able to teach people how to do this as well. So, you know, I think coaching, you know, pushing people to do things that are uncomfortable is, is really important. You know, and I try to, to role model that if I'm telling you to go do something, I better be doing it myself. So I, I really have to push myself in both areas. How much do you think training is psychological? Because I've noticed in my, I think we were talking about this before we got on the show, like on the line, is that my experience, there's been days where I've there's a weight I've lifted easily before. And then I come in and then it just, I, I can't do it. And like, I know it's mental and I had, it's happened to me, you know, the other week had a 485 pound deadlift for my training session. And I've done that before easy, got there to the bar, put my hands on it, started to pull it. And like, it just wouldn't come off the bar. And I texted my coach, I have an online coach. And I said, I, I can't get this. And he's like, no, it's all mental. Get in there and do it. And like, I went in there and I did it and it was fine. So I mean, how much do you think training or physical effort is a matter of psychology. It's funny. I don't really think about it that way, but you're exactly right. I mean, it is very mental. You know, I put in the work, like I, like I said earlier, feelings don't matter in your training, you know, that you, like you did, you followed your coach's protocol and you didn't get it. You know, like what I would do in that situation too, is just, you know, come back in a few minutes. You might have to, you know, especially for deadlifting, might have to amp yourself up a little bit, you know, move around a little bit more and listen to music, whatever it is. But, you know, you just do your reps and you, you you go forward. I do think the psychology can be a real detriment. Like if you would have, you know, started having internal talk of, uh, I'll never get to it. I'm terrible. I've, I used to be able to do this. I can't, you know, that type of thing is, is, you know, what gets people unmotivated and not in the gym anymore. So I think those things are really important. I, we don't allow a lot of, uh, you know, negative talk. And I think just, you know, it's not about being positive, like, oh, I'm the greatest either. It's it's sort of just being realistic, like, okay, that didn't go off the ground. Give me a few more minutes, you know, and not judging it so much. So you don't make it a catastrophe, nor are you being Pollyannish and saying, you know, I'm the best. And, you know, even though that, and that's not true at the moment. That's good advice for overcoming setbacks, whether it's a plateau or an injury, like don't 
don't start wallowing in the like, negative self-talk. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And it's a learning experience too. Like, I mean, it sounds like you learned from that experience quite well that, you know, it's, I contacted my coach and he just told me to do this. And so you learned like, hey, if I give a few more minutes rest, maybe I, I didn't have enough rest between that set and the one before it. Or, you know, some days I'm not going to be mentally there but physically I can still perform this, you know? So whatever it is, you have to do that after action review and, you know, figure out what can I learn from this? And, you know, failure is one of the best teachers. So we really need to, to learn from when we don't do things right. One article that you wrote for Breaking Muscle kind of combines psychology and training was this idea of the placebo principle in performance. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was really interesting. I've been fascinated about the, about the placebo effect for years. And, you know, so with, performance uh, exactly like the, in 1972 they did one of the first studies on steroid placebo use and they gave this group of power lifters you know i think it was it, it, they did like five or six weeks of training and then you know after that they said you know we're going to give some of you steroids and see how that improves your performance they didn't give anyone steroids but the group that thought they did had a big improvement in performance and you know this placebo effect, you know, with thinking about strength improvement has happened over and over again. It's also happened with endurance athletes. So you give runners super oxygenated water, or which is just plain water as a placebo effect. They run 8% faster. You give people uh, amino acids telling them it's going to improve their strength. They get 20% stronger. It's the mind is very powerful in, in how it improved performance. A lot of antidepressants, it, the effect of antidepressants is often thought to be about 50% placebo effect. So people start taking a pill and they think it's making them better. And we see many people who are depressed, like have this immediate gain, like I feel less depressed, but it takes about four weeks for an antidepressant to kick in. So there's no way that it, you know, it's working that fast. It's all, it's all placebo effect. Yeah. It made me think about when those, the, that Ted talk about, I think it was some her last name is Cuddy. She talks about like raising your hands in the air and increases testosterone. You should do that before a big, and I, I've noticed a lot of people doing that. Like, you know, they like, I, and like, but there's research that's come out recently kind of objecting to that saying that maybe it's not acute. Like the effect isn't as cute as we think it is, but I think it's still like, if you think like raising your hands in your air is going to give you a testosterone boost so you can be, you know, stronger or more confident, like it still works. Why not do it? Yeah, I think that one study, you know, there's been some, you know, they haven't been able to replicate the one about your arms in the air. But what you said is, if you believe it, then it will, you know, have that effect on testosterone. So it's it's part of that believing it, you know, sometimes purchase supplements. And, you know, like I know I'm probably buying into the placebo effect. Like if, if that if that works, then that's great. Like, I don't, you know, it's these super labels, like, you know, all these things that the um, supplement industry pushes. It's like, hey, if it's helping me placebo effect or whatever it is, I think that's that's great. Yeah, I think it's it's in, it's really fascinating to me. Let's talk about a little more in depth about your, your academic work. I, I saw in your CV that you, you focus on anxiety disorders. It's kind of been one of your things. I'm curious, like, what constitutes an anxiety disorder? Like, I'm sure some people have felt, you know, anxiety at some point in their lives, but like, what does it feel like for someone who has an anxiety disorder? I mean, we have to have anxiety. It's a signal that something's wrong. So each of us has a certain amount of anxiety. If we don't, then we have a disorder on the other side of, of things. But, you know, for people with anxiety disorders, it's really got to cause some functional impairment in their lives. So, you know, where many of us are afraid to present in public places or, you know, things like that, that's, that's normal. But if you can't go to work or you can't ask people out on dates, 
because you've got so much social anxiety, then it becomes more of a disorder and a problem. So I think that's, you know, that's the big difference. So it's, it's, we're on the spectrum of anxiety, but, you know, the people at the extreme ends, you know, are the ones that just can't uh, perform in life anymore and missing out on, on things that they would like to do. So I'm sure, you know, people who are listening who have an anxiety disorder probably need to see a professional. But I mean, I'm curious, in your, within your research and your career, are there proactive steps that you've found that people can start taking that are small but actually have an immediate effect to mitigate that anxiety disorder? I have never felt so powerful in my life as when I treat people with anxiety disorder because you see people just change their lives completely. And, you know, it's, it's really very simple. It's the idea of you have to face your fears and, you know, not all at once and not necessarily have to you know do it once, but, you know, you figure out the exact fear and expose yourself in incremental doses. And this, you know, goes for people who are functionally impaired, you know, versus, you know, if you're just afraid to present at work or ask somebody out on a date, you know, for people with social anxiety, we often, you know, start them with small tasks, like giving a speech uh, just to me or somebody they trust. And then we move them up to talking to random people at the grocery store. It depends what they fear. Like if they fear making a fool out of themselves, that's what we have to do with them. We have to make a fool out of themselves. So, you know, one of the things we do at the, the store is we have them go up to a random person and say, don't I know you from someplace? And they just have to, you know, no, I think I know you. And they have to sit and have a conversation where the person's looking at them strangely like, no, I don't know you. Please leave me alone. And, you know, after a while, people doing this normal everyday things just don't seem so bad. You know, the more we put people into extreme situations, the everyday anxiety isn't so bad. You know, so for somebody with social anxiety, you know, one of the big things we often do is we have them, you know, take a bunch of caffeine and then go do karaoke. And if you can do that, you can handle doing a presentation at work. You can handle asking somebody on a date. You can handle, you know, those types of things. So, you know, we build up to it. It's like training. We don't start you off at a powerlifting competition. You know, we'll start you off with, you know, some, you know, technique type things and, you know, then build you up from there. So it's, it's, it's fascinating and fun to me because people's lives change and it's just such a simple thing for me to do. It's a, a very simple technique and you know, big changes come from it. I mean, it sounds like these techniques can also work for people who are experiencing run-of-the-mill anxiety, right? To stay cool, calm, and collected. For example, they have to give a presentation in front of a large audience or even performing like in sports or something like that. You can basically put yourself in situations that are uncomfortable before you actually get to the events. You're not as anxious when you actually do the real thing. Most most definitely. And and I think, you know, trying to do the, the events are great, but then, you know, if you can amp it up, you know, like we've had people who are functioning really well and, you know, just afraid to present, you know, IO of a big company. He was afraid to present. So we had him practicing by drinking caffeine, uh, sitting in a sauna presenting. You know, so he had all the worst possible symptoms of anxiety. And then when he's in the regular boardroom, it was it was nothing. So, you know, I, I think pushing yourself in practice so that you perform really well in, in when you're actually trying to. So doing a, like it's it's like how the Navy SEALs train. I mean, they're they're the anxiety experts. They push people really hard in training. And then, you know, they perform to their, their level of training, that they know they can handle things because they've done these extreme type of training. Well, hey, Craig, this has been a great conversation. We've covered a broad range of topics here, but where can people learn more about your work? I'm not really good at this, this online presence type of thing, but, you know, like you said, people can find my articles at StrongFirst or BreakingMuscle.com. If you're, people are ever in Atlanta, we've got an intentional community. We all train outside in, in our 
Courage Corner uh, gym with kettlebells and, and barbells. So anybody can come that you can look at armorbuilding.com. And if anybody wants to come do research with me, the, our address there is markerlab.org. But yeah, I'd love to talk to anybody who, who wants to talk to me. Fantastic. Well, Craig Marker, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Brett. I love your show and I greatly appreciate being on it. My guest today was Craig Marker. He is a strong first kettlebell coach. You can find more information about his work at craigmarker.com. You can see a lot of his content that he's written at breakingmuscle.com. Just search for Craig Marker there. And you can find more information about kettlebell training at strongfirst.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash marker, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the show and have gotten something out of it over the years, I'd appreciate it if you give us, you know, take two minutes, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.